Welcome back to Kinda Christian. Today is a really special episode and one that's a pretty personal issue for me. So like a lot of people studying faith, I've always wondered how certain things in the Gospels can line up when they seem to be completely at odds with each other. There are, for lack of a better word, discrepancies in them. So we sit down with one of the leading New Testament scholars alive today, Dr. Craig Keener. Now, Dr. Keener is famous for having written some of the most popular commentaries on the New Testament, has written more books than I could ever hope to read. Some of these books have over a million words in them. He's got a PhD from Duke and is highly respected in his field. So I sit down with him and I ask him point blank, how do we reconcile some of the inconsistencies in the Gospels? It's a really interesting interview. He opened my eyes to some really good perspectives, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So welcome, Dr. Craig Keener. Welcome back to another episode of Kinda Christian. I am your host, Ryan Bethay, unfortunately for you. And with us today, fortunately for you, is a friend and honestly, one of the most anticipated interviews we've had. Dr. Craig Keener broadcasting to us live from Kentucky in a secret bunker. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Keener is one of the foremost experts on the New Testament, on researching miracles, which honestly, we're going to get into. I have no idea how even one begins to study that. It's so cool. And he's one of the most prolific scholars on this, having set, I would argue, potentially records for uh, the longest uh, commentaries and works, and you are renowned for just having an incredible work ethic. Uh, thank you for being with us. It's great to be with you, Ryan. I know, I know you blush a little bit at some of that praise, but uh, not my words, but others uh, say that uh, you have uh, you've done quite a work. So uh, let's 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 get right into it. I before we jump into the New Testament, because something that a lot of listeners are really interested in is helping deal with a lot of questions about this. Tell us a little bit about your background and you know, your studies. You didn't go to some no-name school in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you come with some pretty cool credentials. Well, um, my background, if you go far back enough, I was an atheist, um, at which point I wasn't really interested too much in the questions we're talking about. I, I wasn't interested. Well, I, I was interested in ancient history, but not this aspect of ancient history. I was more interested in uh, physics and in terms of history, uh, classical Greek history and uh, some ancient Near Eastern history. But I scrupulously avoided studying about Israel or <laughs> things like that. Um, partly, I just had a bias against it. And later after I, after I became a Christian, I Obviously, I, I developed an interest in the Bible, had a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it eventually it led me through a PhD in New Testament and Christian origins at Duke University. All right. So a Christian professor was a blue devil, right? Is that accurate? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, actually, the blue devils, you know, they were named after a World War II uh, allied squadron. Um, got it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where they got their name, but in any case, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I think meant to be a religious statement. <laughs> now you Although did, I am you wearing are, blue right now, but anyway. you are wearing blue. I saw that. Now you did your PhD dissertation and was it on the gospel of John or what was it on specifically? It was the function of Johannine pneumatology in the context of late first century Judaism. So it was 
uh, setting a certain theme in John's gospel in light of the, uh, the context that, that John's gospel was addressing. Wow. So that's uh, sure to come in handy at cocktail parties, right? And you can bring, <laughs> bring that up. Well, without further ado, I am so excited to dive in some of these questions. Uh, these have been culled from lots of folks all across the faith spectrum, from those uh, believers to those who think that this is crazy. And I'm so excited to dig in with these. So without further ado, I would love to start off with, um, so you are you are a Christian yourself, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think something that comes up oftentimes is that people assume because you already believe something, you can't be objective. Would you, how, how would you respond to that? That's a common critique against Christian scholars in this area. Do you think that's a, an unfair characterization? Well, it's, it's unfair if you would say that Christians have a bias and that non-Christians don't. I mean, everybody starts with, with presuppositions, with biases. And part of what scholarship is supposed to be about, at least <laughs> at least historical scholarship is supposed to be about, or at least uh, the traditional way we did scholarship was supposed to be about, was you try to take into account those biases and then do your best to examine the arguments fairly and look at the evidence fairly and be ready to adjust your positions as needed as you go through the evidence. And yeah, that, that happens regularly as you, uh, in fact, as I read people's arguments, a lot of times I'm like, oh, that's a good argument. But then sometimes I'm reading them and like, oh, that's a bad argument. But that's not based on whether I agree with them or not. That's based on, you know, how good the argument is, where the evidence is, and, and so on. Now, when people come to research the New Testament specifically, there are multiple areas that one can study, right? There are you can study the actual language, right? You can study the archaeology. You can study how it was assembled, right? Tell us a little bit about the various types of study that go into when someone says New Testament studies and then where you're at specifically with your area of study. Yeah. Um, ideally, by the time somebody has their doctorate, they should have, you know, sampled at least all of these areas. But... Um, one of the ways to approach it is lexical. Now, today we have uh, that's that's in terms of the the words that are used, um, and today we have all sorts of resources for that that, that didn't used to exist. There's a thesaurus lingua Graeci. Uh, there's also Duke's uh, papyri database. Uh, I'm saying that not because I'm a Duke alumnus, but um, but <laughs> we have you have databases where you can actually see how these words were used across all of ancient Greek literature and also across, you know, since literature was usually written by upper class, also the, um, you know, business documents, just, you know, ordinary daily correspondence in the papyri. So um, lexicography is, is one area. Um, another is Greek grammar. And you'd think that uh, that wouldn't be an issue of live debate today because you know, we're talking about the way Greek was done a couple thousand years ago, but there are there are live debates in that today. Um, another is, like you said, archaeology is is one source that's continually bringing up new information. Um, some of the some of the things we've learned about Galilee in the past twenty years have been remarkable and have required 
revision of some previous um, statements, previous estimates of how large a village was and, and so forth. Um, also, the other, other ancient literature from the Greek and Roman world and ancient Jewish literature. So we can put the, the materials in context. So like ancient magical texts, uh, ancient um, uh, historiography to see how historians wrote back then, what kind of methods they used, biographers, novelists, uh, because the literary techniques are useful. When we talk about Paul's letters, well, how were letters written back then? So examining these, these kinds of sources, we have, uh, you could fill a, easily fill a wall with just uh, the Loeb Classical Library, which has the uh, or Greek or the Latin on one side of the page, the English on the other. Um, I've worked through most of, most of that. And then um, just, just there's so many uh, areas you can do. Obviously, literary is, is really fundamental because, uh, but, but knowing how people wrote literature back then. Um, so uh, tracing the themes through, through a book of the, of the Bible and so on. Yeah, there's just lots and lots of uh, approaches, and it's it's good to be uh, good to be familiar with all of them, and then you tend to specialize more in in certain. And areas. what is your area of specialties in that realm specifically? Um, for some decades, I've been working through ancient literature and just taking copious notes. Um, sometime in the 1990s, I think I switched to. Um, doing everything on computer. But be before I did that, because I couldn't afford a computer <laughs> uh, early on, um, back back then, um, I had about 100,000 index cards of data. Uh, now, this also includes reading through the secondary literature because wow. you know, I wanted to know what had already been done. But yeah, there's just so much that's been done. I mean, some people are just, there's some things where people just are, spinning, <laughs> moving the same old discussions around from different angles. But, but there's a lot that's being done where people actually are digging into ancient texts and, and bringing uh, insights on the way people thought and communicated back then. So would it be safe to say your expertise then is over the years, if you've studied in particular the New Testament, this the Gospels, the, the way they're written, comparing it to other ancient texts and knowing narrative, et cetera, and how to basically cull from that, you know, what is historical, what is literary, and being able to assess just the New Testament in general, and especially compared to everything else going on at that time period. Is that a, probably an oversimplification, but is that fair? <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, uh, no, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't oppose historical literary because, you know, um, ancient historiography was literary as well as, I mean, the uh, historiography means that it was based on information, but it wasn't just annals of disconnected facts. Um, and of course, even there, you know, there's a selectivity principle. Well, which facts are most interesting? The one that is recording them. But um, but they were written up in a in a literary way. Got it. Okay. Well, let's dive in. Uh, what is a gospel. If we were to really make all this simple, and you've thrown out a lot of multi-syllabic words that I already feel smarter having heard, what is a gospel to a lay person just looking at the Bible in general? What is it? 
if somebody were approaching the gospel uh, in the in the first century, they would say, "Oh, this is a biography." Um, that's the pretty much consensus of scholars. Not everybody agrees with that. Uh, some people say it was a historical monograph, but normally a historical monograph about a person overlaps so much with ancient biography that's not too much of a a, a difference. So. Um, it's helpful to look at how ancient biographies were written. Now, the biography, the, the genre of ancient biography, or the literary type, ancient biography, evolved over time. Originally, it was kind of like a funeral oration, although the person didn't have to be dead. You know, it was just a eulogy. You make the person look good. Or if it was somebody you didn't like, you make them look bad. Uh, it's supposed to be based on information. But by the time you get to the early Roman Empire, these are it's a subtype of history. So uh, it's a historical work about a particular person, but emphasizing their character, emphasizing certain traits about them that would be interesting to the audience. So when we read a gospel, and obviously the Bible is full of different types of genres of literature. So a gospel, is it fair to say a gospel should be read as, okay, this is the equivalent of back then. This is historical biographical information. This is what we saw and we are letting you know uh, what's in it and what the, what we think the most important things are you need to know. Yes. Um, okay. As long as we understand that ancient biography wasn't written quite the way modern biography is, you know, we, and we just take that into account. Uh, they didn't, well, actually popular modern biography doesn't have footnotes either, but uh, ancient biography normally didn't have footnotes. They usually just cited their sources where their sources diverged. And when you said, uh, this is what we saw, it depends on what you're writing about. Uh, sometimes right, but it's, it's supposed to be accurate. They're basically saying, look, we, yeah. this is objective as much as this objective history that we are writing about, that we, you know, if, if it's a biography, they're saying this is true. What we're saying is true. This is not embellished. Uh, this is like, this is something we, we saw <laughs> or is embellishment something that would be expected of a gospel. And obviously we'll get to the, the tricky part of the miracles. And there's some aspects of the gospels that would make them, I imagine, harder to swallow. But overall, a gospel is a historical true thing that they're like, we, we, they're the authors of the gospels are saying, we saw this, like, believe us, this is, this is all real stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they are, they are inviting people to believe them. Um, in terms of embellishment, there were certain ways that ancient biographies did write. Well, there was a range. I mean, some were, some stuck really close to the facts and some felt free, you know, if they didn't have all the details for a scene, they'd make up some, some details to connect, you know, fill in gaps in a scene. Um, usually they try to do that by, by inferring as, as uh, accurately as possible what, what they think would have happened. Um, sometimes they'll give different views. Sometimes they'll give different reports. Part of it depends on whether they're writing recent history or ancient history. So if they're writing about somebody who lived centuries earlier, then often, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say up front, all we've got are legends, I'm doing the best we can. <laughs> um, but if they're writing about somebody from, say, a generation before them, then they'll, they'll you know, they'll often say, well, my dad was around during this time, and this is what my dad told me, and I interviewed some of the other surviving witnesses, and, and so on. Um, in today, in the field of oral historiography, 
Normally, if you're dealing with something within living memory, that is when people who knew the eyewitnesses are still alive, uh, you, you get a fairly reliable uh, portrait historically, as opposed to if you're dealing with you know, somebody <laughs> a century and a half earlier. Uh, and, that's, and that's where when you're evaluating what we call, what, what some people call gospels, um, you know, you have things from the second century and the third century and, and, and later um, that, you know, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, all those things, they're, they have to use their imagination a lot. But when, gotcha. we're, when we're dealing with first century Gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're all within living memory of the events. Okay, so, all right, there's a couple things there. So, it would not be considered disingenuine to add some literary embellishment for that time period if you were trying to fill in gaps or make a point uh, if you didn't have access to everything. So no one would accuse you of being dishonest if there were some embellishments. Is that correct? Yep. Unless okay. unless somebody really had it in for you, in which case they'd accuse you of everything. Right. But, so but is there a way to... Is there a way to look back and and I'd love to you know and we'll we'll obviously focus on the the four main gospels. I know you mentioned there's other gospels that came much later, but for academic purposes, right, the main gospels that are considered the authoritative ones are Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John, and the other ones don't even come close to that, right? Those they're right. yeah okay. Yeah, gospel, so Gospel of Thomas is probably the the earliest of the later gospels, and it's over a century after the after the time. Okay. Of, Jesus so is there a way a reader could look and identify what is embellishment versus, because I know this is something that will come up from detractors. They'll say, well, sure, you've got a lot of accurate geography. You've got a lot of really minute details that seem to be very accurate and leads one to say these are biographical. But if you're saying there are sometimes some embellishments, how would they know what are the things that are, this is canon true and this is just you know the author kind of sprinkling in and i imagine that's where a lot of people might say that's where the miracles fall in right they're going to no, accuse no, no, no. the miracles of being the embellishments no you couldn't use this against the miracles i mean if you're talking about uh, early imperial biographies written about events within living memory so um you know maybe people could debate the infancy narratives because they're they're a bit earlier than that uh, they're on the far edge of living memory. But in terms of the stuff from Jesus' public ministry, um, that's that's all within living memory. Um, biographers and historians were not supposed to make up events. Um, mm. So it's one thing to, you know, like uh, to take a, a minor example, um, but uh, most of the examples should be minor. Um, Mark says that the... Uh, a man, his his hand was was withered. He couldn't he couldn't open it. Um, Jesus says, "Stretch out your hand," and the man's hand was healed. In Luke, it specifies it was his right hand. Well, if Luke added that it was the right hand, that doesn't really change the substance of the story. Now, maybe Luke knew that from another source. We don't have a way of of testing mm -hmm. that. You know, two thousand years later, because we don't have all the sources left. And Luke says there were many sources available at the time that he wrote. But if Luke added that, that's not a big deal. That doesn't change the substance of the story. That's within the, the literary uh, rights of the authors. Got it. Okay. So 
in the Gospels, are there embellishments, would you say, by Matthew, Luke, Mark, or John? It depends on what you mean by embellishments. That's I mean, what I was going to ask. So what is yeah, what is what would <laughs> embellishment uh, mean for them uh, as far as, and would they would there be anything that we could look at and say, oh, that might be, um, does embellishment just mean a, an added extra detail? Because I think embellishment for, we we hear that and we think, oh, that's kind of dishonest to embellish something, but it might mean more just to add more detail for them. Is that more fair? Usually usually it's a matter of, of detail. Um, and, so the and right it, arm thing might be, would that, the, the example used with Luke, if Luke says it was a right arm, would that count as an embellishment versus Mark just saying it wasn't an arm, it was you know, just a hand? Uh, yeah, I guess... Yeah, again, it depends on how you define embellishments. I, I, I would say that's a, a minor embellishment. Okay. But uh, it, again, it depends on how you define it. So, um, and, and not all biographers were on the same place in the spectrum on this. So you have people like, you know, the uh, early third century. This is just before or about the time that, that the historiographic standards of biography are on the decline again. But the early third century, Diogenes Laertius, uh, I think we probably have a psychological term for this, but he was uh, uh, anal retentive or something. I don't know. He's, he's so, I mean, he documents everything, you know, says what all the sources mm-hmm. are. I have a student writing a dissertation on, on this right now, going through uh, this multi-volume uh, work of, of Diogenes Laertius. Um, Cornelius Nepos, though, uh, writing in the in the late Roman Republic, so just maybe uh, maybe maybe around a century before some of the Gospels. Cornelius Nepos is sloppy. He's not intending to make things up. He's just sloppy. <laughs> um, and then you then you have uh, but Plutarch, uh, Tacitus, and Suetonius in the early Empire. Uh, you know within. Uh, starting at least within half a century of the of the Gospels, uh, they're they're pretty. Well, anyway, I'm I'm boring you with all the details. No, but. no, no. This is this is important. So, I guess on that line. So, as a scholar and one of the top in the field, I would love to know: Is it your view? And then I'd love to know what you might appraise as the consensus here. Is it your view that the Gospels are historically they are reliable documents for uh, what they saw, what they yeah, you know, the details they have, and and then what is the consensus of sort of scholars? And I know I imagine they're all across the spectrum. But what, what's kind of the state of the the union with that? Yeah, I, I see them as historically reliable. Now, part of the problem is that not everybody defines reliable the same way. If mm. you're talking about the core of the accounts, you know, not like whether Luke may have added right hand or something like that. Right. And then you've got some extreme cases. Uh, but those are fairly rare, and maybe we're going to talk about those later. But, um, but you know, things like that, uh, the, the substance of it has to be right, or at least the, the biographers had to believe that the substance of it was, was right. And in that respect, um, I would see them as historically reliable. But some people would say, well, if Luke added right hand, that's not historically reliable. So part of gotcha. it's a matter of definition. Gotcha, um, okay. In, in terms of where people are in the spectrum, I think that, you know, there's a whole range of scholarship. Probably the majority of scholars, and, and these, these are 
scholars, they've not really taken into account the nature of ancient biography. Some of this stuff is new research. So, mm. but just where it's been, the majority of scholars would say, yeah, we can get a pretty good picture of, of a lot of what happened from the Gospels. Um, not, not everything in the Gospels, so they wouldn't see all the events as authentic, uh, but they would see most, I think, on average, they would see most of them as actual events, uh, maybe sometimes not in the same sequence. Uh, if I can think of examples, I'm, I'm working through some commentaries on Mark now, getting ready to write a commentary on Mark. And so probably toward the center of, of Mark and scholarship, uh, well, Mark and historical scholarship, or maybe not the center, but kind of dominant voices would be like Joel Marcus at Duke. I'm not saying that he wasn't there when I was at Duke, so I'm not saying that because of that. Um, it's an embellishment. And, it was. It's not an eyewitness account. Got it. And, so. and Adela Yarbrough <laughs> Collins at Yale. Uh, no, they would. Yeah, right. They would say um, that. I think they would say most of the accounts in Mark, most of the events happened. Mark made up some to supplement it, but for the. Uh, a lot of it, he's just following his sources. Got it. Okay. And that makes sense. So it seems like general scholarship to date, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. So you're saying that one is that it's viewed as generally reliable. Reliable might have a different meaning because some might say, well, if they got which hand was healed wrong, then they throw out the whole thing, which some people might go, well, that doesn't matter actually. Um, and same as, and I know we'll get into some of the uh, discrepancies or uh, alleged errors that are in there. And I know people come at that from different perspectives. The miracles obviously would, pro I imagine, be the toughest thing from a, a right. skeptic to come in and accept. And that might, for a lot of people, do you think the miracles just invalidate the whole thing for them? Uh, because these things write about, is there an anti-supernatural bias that, that gets yeah. someone from the beginning to say, this can't be true because they say that a guy walked on water? Yeah. Uh, and that's actually where the uh, skeptical approach to the gospel started in a way that, that wasn't practiced with other ancient uh, historical writings or uh, at, the, at the time uh, that the skepticism arose. So there was, they would say, well, you know, it, um, well, actually, what a lot of the scholars early on were saying, well, we know that miracles can happen. So the story about Jesus walking on water, it just grew from a thing where the disciples um, saw Jesus, they thought walking on water, but actually he just knew where the rocks were. Uh, you know, that doesn't <laughs> work out in the middle of the Lake of Galilee, but you know, they, they would say, okay, the, the setting is wrong, but they did see what they thought was him walking on water. And then, uh, you know, Some rocks, it, are there rocks in the Gal in the sea of Galilee that you're aware of that someone could uh, walk well, on water? You'd have to be, I don't know, out in the middle of the lake. You'd probably have to be uh, hundreds of hundreds of feet or hundreds of feet tall uh, to walk on because the rocks are way down. I've I've been to the Sea of Galilee and I'm going. It's uh, it's funny. So it's scholars <laughs> who say this can't happen, or a lot say that it seems to be the consensus, right? That most people, even if they disagree with the overall premise of the gospels, they're saying these guys believed what they wrote. They thought they saw all this stuff. Yeah. Well, they believe they saw it or they believe that the eyewitnesses on whom they're relying uh, saw it. 
But in terms of uh, Strauss, uh, David Friedrich Strauss in the, in the uh, 1800s, he said, no, it, they can't just be walking on, on rocks out in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. Some of the stuff is myth that, uh, and legend that arose over the course of generations. And to make that argument, he dated the Gospels very late uh, into the second century. And you know, some people were dating the Gospel of John into the late second century until they found, of course, a fragment of the Gospel of John dating from the first half of the second century, and that shot that. But um, that became the dominant paradigm. So Rudolf Bultmann was a major um, mm -hmm. skeptical scholar in the 20th century. And, you know, again, he wasn't taking into account living memory. He was saying, okay, these things are legends. He, he was using the model of, of um, fables and things, uh, folk, folk tales that arose over the course of centuries. And, and that's, that doesn't work when you're talking about things within one to two generations. Because <laughs> people so, could have presumably called you out, right? They could have said, hey, like, that's, yeah. that didn't happen that way. And I guess I wanted to ask you, I know in Luke, it opens with Luke saying, look, I saw this, right? And I took great measure to write down, like with great, great detail, right? Is it the Gospel of Luke where he says, um, I made great effort to maintain the accuracy of this, right? And I saw all this. He, he, he doesn't say he saw this. He says he consulted with eyewitnesses. Okay, so he, yeah, he did his homework on this, and this yeah. is true, right? Yeah. Is he, that, yeah. He, he, do, he does say um, that he has thorough acquaintance with it. Um, it's often translated investigate, but in other ancient historical prefaces, normally the language meant, uh, and David Messner uh, has, has developed this, just uh, great detail going through ancient historical prefaces. Normally it meant being thoroughly acquainted with something, often even to the point of having participated. And so that fits the second half of Acts, where at certain points you have we, the author, participating. Now there is a debate about what that means, and but that's another but the point is, would you find in ancient history, if someone was going to be making up fables and stuff, they would they open with a preface like that? Like, yeah. I, I consulted? Because yeah. I guess that's where I, I get, I'm not confused, but I'm interested because they write like people say, look, hey, like almost daring people say, look, hey, I, I, I have researched this and it wouldn't logically follow, right, that they would then go make, make this up. So I, I think I'd be inclined to say they probably whether it happened or not, he believed what right. he was writing about. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's writing in a historiographic genre. He's not, he's not writing mythography. It's a different genre. Okay. Okay. So the big question everybody has, and I know this is a un unleashing Pandora's box here, but does, do you view the new Testament as having errors in it or just discrepancies that can, for the most part, be explained. Well, uh, reconciled. Just before that, let me let me just um, add one comment on what we were saying before. Yeah. Um, the strong majority of historical Jesus scholars, whether they are Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, agnostic, atheist, strong majority of historical Jesus scholars believe that Jesus was 
experienced by his contemporaries as a miracle worker and an exorcist. Okay. So they may not explain those as divine activity, but that's the strong legit because the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus was experienced that way. All the historical sources see him that way. So scholars are pretty much the consensus is whether these miracles happen or not, they're not sure, but they, all these people believed that they saw these miracles and that Jesus was working these miracles. Yeah. And people, people believe that they experienced them. So, Got uh, it. But, but then, you know, the explanation from somebody who would be a non-theist would be, these weren't miracles. These were psychosomatic. Uh, obviously that Got doesn't it. work for walking on water. They would dismiss that one as not having happened, but um, but the ones that they can say could be psychosomatic, because we have so many accounts of people being healed in things like that today, and so it's really hard to say. Well, it couldn't have happened back then, but um, that makes sense. Okay, well, that's all right. That makes sense. So I guess coming back to it, and do you do you view the New Testament as having errors, or would you say discrepancies that are then uh, reconcilable? Uh, through just, you know, the historical method and kind of going back through that? Well, discrepancies, now historical method can't actually reconcile all discrepancies in any ancient or, or modern work for that matter. I mean, because we don't have all the data. So historical method is limited in, in, in that respect. Now, whether one calls certain things errors or whether one says, no, this, is, this was within the latitude, the range that was permitted in that genre in that time. Um, and whether you say, well, it was an error in the source or an error in the final, you know, so people debate all that. Um, to say that there's no error, um, that's a statement of faith. That's not something historiography can bring you to. You can't prove a negative. Got uh, it. So as a, as a Christian, I accept the Bible as God's word. Uh, because Jesus accepted the Old Testament as God's word, and because of the understanding of inspiration at that time, what that meant, um, he also commissioned his followers. So I accept it as God's word. But that's a statement as a Christian. Um, that, that's, that's not something, I mean, as an atheist, that's not what would have converted me, somebody telling me that. But if they, if they had told me, well, we have evidence for this, this, and this, that, I mean, there's enough evidence, I think, to compel us to affirm the basic message of the gospel story. And to affirm that, I think, invites faith. And if you invite faith, then, you know, where does, where does that take you from there? But that's a, um, to speak of inerrancy, that's a Christian presupposition. And how inerrancy would be defined, um, you know, scholars don't, on a popular level, people are like, you know, well, if he says the right hand, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. that's not how scholars normally define it. So, um, but again, that's a, uh, that's no, that, a that makes sense. That's a, and so, that's an esoteric debate in a sense. Okay. And I guess it's probably a good time to bring up. So one of the main sort of celebrities in this area is the scholar, is Professor uh, Bart Ehrman. Mm-hmm. And he gets brought up a lot. And obviously on one hand, he has been overwhelmingly a big proponent of Jesus was real. We have a pretty good idea of what was said, even though there are a lot of variants. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard him say on multiple occasions, and he brought up in a recent debate 
the differing accounts, for example, of the death of Judas, which I had actually never noticed in studying that. Matthew says Judas hung himself, and that's a pretty grim example, but uh, and the money was given back and then used to purchase a field, and therefore that was called the field of blood. But then in Acts, Peter says that we all know what happened to Judas. He fell forward and his gut spilled out and blood spilled, and that's why it's called there, and so uh, the field of blood. And Bart was saying that to another scholar, well, how can those two things be true? And I remember thinking, well, uh, it, most of that story seems to reconcile. It's just the manner of his demise seems to be a, you know, irreconcilable. And then I'm left wondering, is that really the big, the big deal? And so there are, I've noticed there are multiple accounts in scripture where they might be differing like that. How do you, how do you work those out in your mind? Yeah. Bart is my friend. So, um, in responding, this is something that I would say if if it were Bart and me in uh, talking together. But um, in terms of those accounts, those are, you know, that's one of what I would call one of the more extreme examples. That's not like the right hand. Uh, it's it's more significant than that. Uh, I would take that in the, in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke is probably the most, some of the most extreme examples. They're also a reason why I think that Matthew and Luke depended on a common source in addition to Mark, rather than Luke just using Matthew uh, or the reverse. So when you say extreme, you mean those are great, those are good examples of discrepancies that yes. are not very easily reconcilable. Yeah, yeah. They, these, they require a little more. Not, it's not a small thing like just the right hand. This is a bigger thing. But in terms of, in terms of the substance of the account, I mean, I deal with this in my Matthew commentary. Uh, I also deal with it in my Acts, my four-volume Acts commentary, and then my one-volume one for Cambridge. Um, and I don't remember if I have it in the one-volume one, but in the four-volume one, I, I actually have a chart of the differences and the similarities between the accounts. And there is substantial overlap. So what we see, Matthew and Luke are not depending on the same, uh, I mean, neither one of them is depending on each other, but they do have some common information that they share uh, more than you would expect. I mean, they can't be making it up from scratch. So um, at some point, somebody has elaborated something, apparently. Um, now, there is, a, there is a possible way to reconcile them. I'm not convinced that it's the correct way. Um, and that is that Judas hanged himself, somebody cut him down and splat. <laughs> I, I have heard I have heard that explanation, and, and I think Bart fairly said you shouldn't have to go to these extreme you know scenarios where maybe they're both true. He fell down from the tree and then spilled his guts, and you know that seems a yeah. little far fetched. Yeah, I'm not persuaded by that. But having said that, I found examples in ancient literature where things like that happened, and so I mean it was anyway, and and. In terms of when you have historical sources that are usually accurate, it makes sense to, your first step shouldn't be to say, okay, which of these is right? Your first step should be to say, how did we get here with these different accounts? Is there something that explains them both? Um, I have <clears throat> things that my wife wrote down about her, her experience as a war refugee in Congo. I also have, uh, I also interviewed her after the war uh, while we were engaged and I found some discrepancies. Well, because I have a living witness, I could go back and ask her about him. 
And mm-hmm. m- most of the discrepancies were like, well, it was just different ways of translating the French word into English and so on. Um, so, and then some things, were, I mean, you have memory variants too. Uh, remembering exactly when this happened or that happened, uh, her journal is going to be more accurate on that than her memory. So, um, you know, the arrangement of things, the chronological sequence, you don't expect that from from most sources that aren't dependent on, on annals. <clears throat> but um, there was a, a debate about, speaking of people being hanged, there was a debate about a lynching that occurred of two brothers a generation ago. It's just an awful, uh, not uh, more than a generation ago, actually, uh, just an awful thing. But according to some eyewitness accounts, they were hanged from a tree. According to some other eyewitness accounts, they were hanged from a railroad crossing. So which was it? And scholars debated that, historians debated that, until photographs surfaced of them hanging from the tree and photographs surfaced of them hanging from the railroad crossing. Apparently, well, my guess is they were hanged first from the tree and then the, the, the wicked people who did this, they wanted to make it more obvious. So they cut them down or uh, let wow, them down and wow. then rehanged them from the, from the railroad crossing. And it turns out that both were correct. So wow. I'm, I'm not saying that right. always is, is the way to do it. You do have variants, memory variants, but, um, but, you know, we need to at least allow for possibility in some cases like that. Oh, yeah. And I guess it's probably fair if they're going to say that a guy walked on water, then the Judas account's really not that crazy miraculous. <laughs> um, what yeah. about... Uh, I actually, Bart asked me, I think, do you believe Jesus walked on water? And I said, yes. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't have a problem with that because I believe in a God who created the universe. So why would I have a problem with Jesus walking on water? You're, I, that's that's something I've thought about. Um, one thing that's always bothered me, and I've had a tough time, is in this. I realize this might be a longer answer, but John has a different crucifixion narrative than the other Gospels. Mm-hmm. How would one explain that? That that seems to me, as an uneducated person in this area, that that would fall under a significant discrepancy. Is that accurate or no? Uh, how does that? How do you work that out? Well, the standards of ancient historiography and biography, um, well, it depends on which part you're talking about. But by the standards of ancient historiography, this is going to be not a big thing in terms of moving the temple cleansing from uh, before, you know, the week before Jesus' crucifixion to moving it early in Jesus' ministry. Ancient biographies weren't required to be in chronological order. And it's not like this is a new discovery that, okay, John has this in a different place than Mark has this. Um, You know, and scholars debate, I mean, some scholars do say there were two temple cleansings. Um, I've argued that John moved it for theological reasons. Um, There's a minority of scholars who think that Mark moved it uh, for theological reasons, and then Matthew and Luke followed him. But, um, you know, this isn't a new thing. It's, it's always been recognized. And uh, Martin Luther, for example, said that uh, he thinks that, that um, Mark, no, he thinks John moved it for theological reasons. 
But he also says, this is not a gospel issue. It's no big deal. It doesn't affect, you know, our faith. And so um, in terms of uh, some of the other ones, I see these as John tweaking the traditional passion. Now, there's a bunch of different views in this. So I'm not saying everybody agrees with this. This is, this is my approach as, as one Johannine scholar. Uh, I have a friend who's a Johannine scholar who thinks that, you know, Mark was the one who switched things. But, um, but there seems to me to be a pattern in the differences between John and Mark on these things. Um, and moving the temple cleansing forward, he overshadows all of Jesus' ministry with the passion, or with, you know, the uh, coming death of Jesus. So it keeps saying his hour is not yet come and so on. And then you get to uh, certain things like in, in Mark, Jesus says, whoever dips with me in the, in the bowl for the, for the Passover, whoever dips with me uh, is the one who's going to betray me. And John, it says that Jesus dips it himself and gives it to Judas. Mm. Um, and this, is, this comes from the testimony of the person who would, who would have been on his right hand, the beloved disciple. So, you know, it claims at least to be eyewitness material, but then uh, there are other, I mean, some of the details like the, the uh, spear piercing aside, just because somebody else doesn't record a detail, I mean, you always have that with people writing different stories, different accounts, eyewitnesses, they're not always going to report all the same details. But where you have different details, like that's one of the different details. Or in John, Jesus bears the cross, whereas in Mark, they get Simon of Cyrene to do it. Now, in this case, um, usually people did bear their own cross to the site of the execution. So normally you'd say, well, John's probably right on this. Mark has theological reasons for saying it was Simon of Cyrene. But then Mark also mentions, you know, his audience knows the sons of Simon of Cyrene. So, hmm. um, so the way that it looks like most scholars handle it is maybe Jesus started, he couldn't finish, Simon, Simon finished it for him. But why does one gospel emphasize the one thing, one gospel emphasizes the other? Mark emphasizes discipleship failure a lot. But this, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. And when it came time to do that, the disciples were all in hiding. And so the, the soldiers had to draft a bystander, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him. But John emphasizes, you know, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own account. And so, um, and, and theologically, this, you know, that's already in Mark where, you know, he keeps certain things doesn't make him public until he's ready to get executed. But in, in John, there's this driving emphasis on this. So Jesus carries his own cross. He doesn't bother to mention Simon of Cyrene. Um, in Mark, the, the Last Supper is a Passover meal, um, which points to the meaning of Jesus' death. But in John, the way it's set up, it, it's not completely explicit, but the way it's set up, it makes it look like Jesus' death itself is directly Passover. So he's less subtle about the symbolism. He goes, he goes right for, for the heart of it. Um, and yeah, things like that. There are, uh, 
I mean, some of these are reconcilable. Some of these are hard to reconcile. Um, What's something but, that's hard to reconcile? I know we mentioned the Judas thing. What's a What's a thing that's hard to reconcile for you? I normally consider one that's hard to reconcile the the date of the uh, whether Jesus is crucified on Passover or on the uh, whether the Last Supper was a Passover meal or whether um, Jesus actually gets crucified when the lambs are actually being killed in the temple. Um, there, I th- I think that John is is tweaking the passion narrative that everybody already knows, but like a good storyteller, he's just, I mean, he's, he's got the same basic substance. Jesus died, um, but Jesus died as the Passover lamb. So he's, he's taking the theology and making it more explicit. However, that's not everybody's solution. Um, I just, I had an email from Colin Humphreys, who's a, I think he's an astronomer at Cambridge, and he's got a uh, something on the chronology, uh, including the passion narrative. So uh, somebody's sending me that book, so I may have to revise my my view on that. We'll we'll, we'll see. <laughs> so let me. So one thing, Christians will come to the gospel authorship, and is it the view of most Christians that God presided over the assembly? of these gospels, is that a basic tenet that uh, is brought to the table? Yeah, believing, believing in their inspiration. When, when ancient writers talked about inspiration, they believed, well, actually there were some different views among Greeks, but the dominant view among Greeks and the, the uh, dominant Jewish view was that uh, it would be without error. Um, Josephus and Philo, both affirm this, but then you look at what they do with the text. Uh, Philo feels free to embellish certain stories. Uh, I mean, and and Josephus, both with the Old Testament, uh, but but especially with his own story, his own life, uh, in in different different books where he's writing it different ways, he he takes liberties that the gospel writers wouldn't take, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, you have a range among the Gospels, but I don't think even John, you know, takes the range of liberties that Josephus takes in telling his own story. So, yes, it has to be based on events, but the way you tell those events, um, there was a little bit of latitude. So, so the idea is that God inspired them and reminded them what to write down. Is that correct? Yeah, I would I would say that. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question then is would writing it down. It, well, I guess my question would be then would would the would God then have inspired them to write these things down knowing there would be these discrepancies or knowingly implant them there to invite debate? I I guess I'm wondering what would be the plausible reason that God would if he's inspiring them allow them to have discrepancies in the gospels between each other. Right. I, I don't know if that, yeah. if that makes sense, but I mean, again, most of the discrepancies are minor, right? Uh, you've got a handful that are more, you know, what I would call extreme Judas's death, genealogies, um, Passover 
the date of the Passover, you could say that's extreme, but these were all within the range, accepted range of, of um, variation. The events still, I mean, it's not saying these events didn't happen. So, right. um, but having, having said that, when God inspires things, he inspires them within particular genres. So it doesn't make sense to speak of the Psalms as historically reliable. Right. Uh, a parable doesn't have to be historically reliable. When we speak of historical reliability, we have to speak in terms of the nature of the genre. So what was expected of a historical document in the first century? Um, you know, when you're looking at Genesis, are we, are we going to expect in Genesis 1 a, a statement of um, quantum physics? I mean, you don't even have the words in Hebrew to, to, <laughs> to speak of quantum physics, you know? So it's going to be communicated in the language of its day. But, but the message of it is God's message. I know when I was an atheist, actually, when I started wondering... I did take a peek at a Bible one time, and I started with Genesis 1, and I was so turned off because I was expecting a scientific description. Uh, but actually, you know, I mean, it starts from the simplest to the most complex. It's just describing God's ordering of, you know, uh, God creates, he develops. Um, but I was thinking, you know, these days have to be, I didn't understand in the Hebrew word yom, it can mean you know, it's used three different ways in the creation narrative. And anyway, I'm, I'm going off subject again. But just to say, we need to take into account the genre in which these things are written and, and what, that, what the expectations of that were for the time. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't be expected to write or read these things in light of genres that didn't exist yet. But we should have enough sense historically to not read things anachronistically, but to go read them in light of what can be known about uh, the context in which they wrote. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. So, and just for, and I realize I didn't clarify this earlier on, but these gospels as a whole, they're written do scholars date these things as roughly four to five decades after the death of Jesus? Depends on which one. Um, the Gospel of Mark, roughly four decades. Uh, now, that, that, when I say that, um, I'm speaking of an average of scholars. So, um, Mark tends to be dated 65 to 75. Um, I've said 64, but as I'm reading the arguments now, I may be moving toward the late 60s, but... Uh, I, I haven't I haven't settled on that yet. Um, some people date it much earlier. Um, uh, some scholars have dated it even even as early as the forties. But uh, so within the lifetime of Jesus, but still a long ways after, right? After the lifetime of Jesus, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, right? And and the Gospel of John is usually dated latest around sixty five years after uh, Jesus' public ministry. But when we speak of living memory, that's often said to be about 80 to 100 years. So 100 years out is, you know, far edge of living memory. 80 years out is a lot closer. Um, 
and, and 65 is certainly well within living memory. Often around the 40-year mark, turning of generation, a lot of the eyewitnesses dying out, you have people starting to write down memoirs. And uh, by the time Luke writes, he says, many have already written accounts of this. Uh, his many undoubtedly includes Mark because of the overlap that he has with Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like 90% of, of Mark reappears in the substance of it. Again, it doesn't have to be the exact right. wording, Matthew or Luke. And actually, when, when Matthew and Luke are using their, their historical sources, um, chances are they had a much better understanding of what Mark was <laughs> than our armchair speculation today. I mean, if they're writing it, writing biographies, then they, you know, they thought that Mark was a, was a good source. Um, why do you think they, why do you think that they decided to, or felt, in, you know, factoring inspiration from God, why do you think they wrote it just so long afterwards? Uh, you know, I've heard it said that during the lifetime of Jesus, that everything was, it was oral teaching and they weren't, they weren't experiencing it as if they planned on writing this. And, and then the writings come out so much later. It's always, it's always perplexed me why these things come out decades later. I mean, I think how much I, I forgot what I had for breakfast last week. Uh, now, granted, if I saw a man walk on water, presumably I wouldn't forget that. That would, that would be something. But, you know, do, do you ever wonder why these things came out so long after Jesus's passing? Yeah. Well, in terms of, uh, there's so many answers. I have like three chapters in, in Christo biography about this, but, um, for one thing, we don't have all the sources that Luke talks about. Um, the scholars who think that, for example, Mark used a, a pre-Mark and Passion narrative. Um, we don't know how early that was. Some scholars have, have dated it to the 40s. Um, we also have some of the things reported by Paul uh, in the 50s, um, even, the, even the early 50s. Uh, some 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 of Jesus' end time teachings we we tend to call them his eschatological teachings. We have them in First and Second Thessalonians, um, and there's little, well, virtually all scholars accept First Thessalonians as as a, a letter authentically from Paul, and uh, it 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 includes a lot of these same teachings from Jesus, says according to the word of the Lord, and then uh, just you can catalog all these points where it, it goes point by point along with uh, Jesus' eschatological teachings that according to when we usually date the Gospels were written down later. Also, final publications, what, what we tend to call final publications, usually have a prehistory. So mm. people would, if it were a major work, not a letter, but if it were a major work, somebody would write and rewrite uh, they also would often practice these things orally. Um, according to Papias, who's writing in the early second century, I know, I know Bart doesn't, doesn't agree with this, but according to Papias, who's writing in the early second century, now Papias is writing within living memory, not of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, well, maybe at the far end, of, depending on when you date Papias. But he's writing within living memory, certainly of the writing of Mark. And, and he... He's, he attributes the gospel to, to Mark, and he says that Mark got it from Peter, which would help explain why Matthew and Luke uh, are 
so ready to use Marx so soon after Marx's writing. It would also, um, it also fits what we have in First Peter about uh, Mark being with Peter. Now again, you've got all these layers of skepticism where people are questioning all these things, but it fits together, I think, pretty well. Um, so these things, bottom line is these things could have been in circulation or the information, just because the final sort of press release, if you will, is dated for Mark, we'll say four decades after, doesn't mean that other writings, stories, information about that wasn't already in wide circulation. Yeah. Okay, so that... And, and Papias yeah. says that he got this information from a, a previous generation. So got it. he learned okay. this stuff earlier, probably in the late first century. So there could have been others that we don't know about. Oh, oh yeah. And, 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 and I mean, Pap yeah, Papias' information about Mark, I think, uh, works that way. But also, in terms of, of memory... It's true. We don't remember most things. Well, of course, I'm an absent-minded professor, so I shouldn't speak for everybody. But, <laughs> um, you know, we don't remember what we had as a, as a meal last week unless we eat the same thing every day, uh, which is usually what I did years ago when I uh, did all my own cooking. But, um, but we, you know, things that are very significant to us we're much more likely to remember them. Now, there's different kinds of memory. There's semantic memory, where you just learn information. And there's uh, episodic memory. That's like the memory of your own experiences. Mm -hmm. Episodic memory, you don't normally remember it in chronological order, uh, unless it's, you may remember it happened uh, along with something, and you might be able to date that event. But normally, we don't remember it in chronological order. But we remember certain events. And in terms of personal events, personal event memory, the events that are significant to us, or we consider significant to us, after five years, we're only going to remember about half of those. But the forgetting curve seems to level off after that point, so that what you still remember after five years, you're still probably going to remember decades later. If I can give uh, just a, a fairly random example, my uh, 40th high school reunion, which tells you how old I am, but my 40th high school reunion mm -hmm. that I attended, um, somebody said, oh, I remember in third grade, uh, Mrs. Morningstar was the teacher, and you were humming Gilligan's Island. And so she said, if you're going to hum, you have to sing it in front of the class. And so you got up and you sang it word for word. Now, I can tell you that I do not remember anymore the words to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I remember the tune, sort of, but, um, but I, I can tell you also that I remember that same event that she described because it was somewhat traumatic event for me <laughs> having to sing it in front of the whole class. So... You know, it got stuck in both of our memories for different reasons. Both of us remember that event independently 40 years later. And, you know, there are other things we could, I mean, there's a lot of and studies. You didn't, and you didn't walk firsthand with the alleged savior of the universe and witness his ministry. So one could imagine that would be more traumatic than singing Gilligan's <laughs> Island in front of the class. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, after the first few raisings from the dead, 
maybe the disciples are not going to remember some of the later ones, but the first few that they see are probably going to be pretty dramatic uh, memories to them. And they're, yeah, I would, I would think so. Hard to imagine getting numb from raising the dead. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen that. Um, I want to, as we wrap up here, I definitely want to get to, you mentioned Paul a couple of times. I'd be remiss if we didn't get to the apostle Paul, who's also a huge part of the story. So apostle Paul he is a well-established historical figure, correct? Yes. Okay. And yeah, nobody, nobody's going to make up something like First Corinthians with all the, all the right. local issues he's got to deal with. Yeah. So one thing that I'm curious about is that Paul claims to have had an experience. And that's right. He's a well-established uh, Jewish Pharisee who is persecuting Christians. And then something happens to him that radically alters his course. Do most scholars agree or have consensus that Paul genuinely believed something happened to him, hence his conversion? Oh, and yeah. so, okay. And so, Paul, what is the explanation then from a, I'm curious, from a skeptical standpoint, uh, if the detractors said, well, this guy must have hallucinated or he was out in the desert too long, or, I mean, obviously, people have radical conversion experiences. You know, there's cults, there's all sorts of things, but. You know, well, how, how would you work that out? I mean, would is there any other explanation other than Paul thought he saw this person that he would he have known what Jesus looked like in his lifetime? I don't know if he would have known what he looked like in his lifetime, but um, the way Luke describes it, and and pretty much the way Paul describes it in his own letters, uh, it wouldn't really matter if he knew what he looked like in his lifetime because he's seeing this. A glorious figure that mm -hmm. fits what he knows from the Old Testament, uh, or you know, the Hebrew Bible, as a theophany. You know, this is a revelation of of divine glory, or at least an angel. You know, he's gonna he's gonna have to say, well, okay, uh, I need to backtrack <laughs> yeah. um, majorly. I, I had a radical conversion experience, but it, I didn't have a. I mean, I didn't actually see the Lord like. Like Paul did, I had an experience of the spirit. You weren't knocked off a horse. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't riding a horse. Uh, it's not not everybody agrees Paul was either. But anyway, um, <laughs> okay. Paul, get off your high horse. I don't know if that's related. But anyway, so Paul was um, in his own writings. He describes this. He he links it with the experiences of the earlier apostles who saw it, and of five hundred who saw this on one occasion. You don't have mass hallucinations like that. Uh, no, I mean, it's just not something that you've got in even abnormal psychology. You don't have everybody hallucinating the same thing at the same time. You can have people tripping out in LSD, but they're going to have different uh, different hallucinations. So, When you say the 500, are you saying Paul said... I is as he appeared to me, he also appeared to 500 other no, no, people. Not at the same time as to him, but right. But he's saying he has a, he, 500 other witnesses have seen what I've seen. Yeah. Over 500. Uh, he says they, you know, over 500 on a single occasion saw Jesus alive from the dead. And then, you know, others, and he lists them going way back to the earliest, uh, you know, the ones we have in the gospels. And when Paul is, is writing this, this would be about, uh, well, first Corinthians, maybe 23 years or so after, after Jesus execution. And as Christians, we say after his resurrection as well. 
uh, Paul says he saw the risen Christ, and he goes on to speak of a glorified body um, and speaks of it in other terms, but, uh, you know, he saw him in, in glory. Now, Paul was a persecutor. He knew that this sect was subject to persecution. He knew what it was going to cost him to join the sect. He'd already, I mean, he'd been on the other side. I, I, I just had to apologize to people when I became a Christian for making fun of them for being Christians. But I mean, imagine his condition when he, um, so yeah, he, he definitely believed. He had a lot to lose, basically. He had a lot to lose, and eventually he did lose it. He died for it. And, and this is the same Paul who writes to the Corinthians in another letter in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and says, you saw the signs and wonders of an apostle done among you. So he's appealing to their own eyewitness knowledge of miracles. Um, and, and he mentions it happening in Romans 15, 19, in all the places where he was starting churches. You know, he didn't, doesn't mention it everywhere, but mentions it uh, in the context of starting new churches. How did this spread in the Roman world? I mean, even, even in, in the 300s, uh, Yale, Yale historian Ramsey McMullen, you know, he, he said he was shocked by what he found, but what he found for the 300s was that um, the, the majority cause of conversion to Christianity were healings and exorcisms. Why else? I mean, it's not the only reason, but, you know, for people to have all these, all these gods, and it's just a part of their life, and it's a part of civic life and everything, it's part of your family heritage, to be willing to turn from that and turn to the one God of Israel. Um, you know, there were, there were plenty of people who did this, but this is like, it was spreading pretty fast. Is there any scholarship on the 500 or other eyewitnesses that if there's so, I, I guess I'm asking if so many people saw this and it seems obviously we have the gospel accounts, we have Paul's account. Are there other accounts of those 500 or those people that he mentions that have written about their own experience? And if not, why, why do you think, is that just, we've lost them to history? Yeah. I mean, we've lost most things to history. Of course, most things that are people's memory are never written down. Most people never write memoirs. And most memoirs don't survive that long. Um, there's, there's one uh, scholar's estimate based on what survived uh, from, and this is a somewhat earlier period, but he suggested like one eighty thousandth of the information survived. So we're in much better position with the New Testament. Uh, he was talking about things like the time of Abraham, um, we only have a slight sliver. I mean, the, the odds of finding even the name of a patriarch from the patriarch's own generation are pretty slim. So you have to use other methods to try to reconstruct the historical context. But when we're talking about the first century, uh, you know, when Paul appears before Gallio, that's attested. Uh, well, we have an inscription that tells us when Gallio was in Corinth. Uh, we have writings from Josephus. By the way, Josephus is a first century historian who does talk about Jesus, does say that Jesus was a sage and um, a worker of wonders. Um, uses the same term paradoxa that he uses for Elisha's uh, miracles. Uh, this would be in Josephus' Antiquities 18, paragraphs 63 and 64. Um, 
It was done up a little bit by later scribes. Uh, didn't think Josephus was respectful enough to Jesus, but, um, but we have what scholars have reconstructed as the original version and also confirmed by an early Arabic version of the of it that fits the scholarly reconstruction. But anyway, that's another story. Well, and, and Paul writes, similar to what we mentioned about Luke, right? He writes that, doesn't Paul at various points invite others to say, hey, like, you know, you you saw this too, or you can ask them, like, they're, they're people who could call him out if he's wrong, right? And the yeah. way he's writing, is, is it fair to say that he would be inviting, uh, you know, a, I guess, doubt on his own ministry if he was making all this up? Yeah, and when he, and yeah, I mean, he, he says that about his own miracles. You were witnesses. I said that about some of his own teachings. He also says um, with the 500, most of them are still alive t- to this day. So in other words, they're available to check them out. The ancient world, well, the ancient Mediterranean world in the early Roman period was not as isolated as some people today suppose, like, well, you've got this group here that thinks this and this group here, here that thinks that. And the early Christian community was pretty well networked. You had people, um, well, in the Jewish community, you had travelers going from, from one place to another. Uh, they would often carry letters of recommendation. They could find hospitality in synagogues and local Jewish communities. You had the same thing with the, the early Christian communities that were you know, uh, considered a sect within Judaism. Travelers, uh, Paul in his letters, you know, he says, so-and-so, I'm sending a t- Tychicus, I'm sending him to you. Uh, he'll tell you by word of mouth the things that basically we don't dare say by letter. And, and you know, people were traveling all the time. Uh, the, the saying, all roads led to Rome. Well, that's because Rome built the roads. But, yeah, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of connections. People were traveling, uh, and we have them in different places, even in Paul's letters, moving around. Got it. So you mentioned miracles, signs, and wonders, and I know this is an area that you've done a ton of work on, so I think we'll just have to have another (laughs) interview with you because I know it's funny. I've seen your interviews on a lot of different blogs, and it seems that there's always part one and two with Dr. Keener because you can't can't fit it all there. But I I do want to ask, so you believe in miracles today? Yes. And you've done so much research on this. Have you have you personally seen a mir- what would constitute a miracle? Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and some of this depends on how you define miracles. Um, I haven't seen the, the sea part, and I haven't seen somebody walk on water, although I've interviewed people who said that they have experienced it. Um, wow. But, you know, whether people believe that or not depends on whether they believe the people who I interviewed. But in any case... When I was, um, I was a fairly young Christian. I, I still ha- had some of my, um, I think I still had some of my atheistic uh, premises hanging on. But I was helping at a nursing home Bible study. And there was a, a lady named Barbara who every week would say, I wish I could walk. I wish I could walk. And she would always be there in a wheelchair. And one day, the Bible study leader, who was named Don, he said, I'm tired of this. He, he was a seminary student. Um, he, he, he got up out of his chair, walked over to her, grabbed her by the hand, said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Lifted her from her chair. 
Now, if faith is a bias, I can't be accused of it in this case because I thought she was going to fall on, on the floor. Yeah. And, and you could tell by the expression on her face, she thought she was going to fall on the floor too. So if this was psychosomatic, it wasn't her psycho, as we like to say. But he walked her around the room, and you, you saw the shock on her face. She couldn't believe what was happening. And, and she said, I think I want to go sit down now. So he walked her back, <laughs> and she sat down. But from then on, Barbara would walk to the Bible study, and, and she would always say, I love my Bible study, I love my Bible study. Now you can say, well, maybe... Maybe she just thought she couldn't walk. Maybe, maybe uh, she was wrong about that. I mean, this was, I didn't think to get medical documentation back then. I try to get medical documentation now for, for accounts. But, um, you know, I was, what was I? I was like, uh, yeah, I was really young. <laughs> and anyway. Wow. That, that's, man. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's bold. But but, I mean, but if it was psychosomatic, I mean, there was a good chance she would have fallen on the floor. And again, she didn't believe it was happening, even even as it was happening. She it wasn't until afterwards she she realized, oh, I really can walk now. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. Um, and I know, I know there's you've mentioned this in some of your other talks. There are dozens, hundreds. Uh, I don't know exactly how to characterize it of cases where. You've said you've seen, or not seen, but you've heard of examples of small intestinal regeneration. You've seen so regenerative miracles. Um, there's Dr. Candy Brown's research of the blind, blind and deaf people receiving eyesight and hearing in peer-reviewed medical journals. Is there just for people who are saying, you know what, I, I would just love to be open to this? Is there, as a researcher, can you say there's ample evidence to believe? at least in the possibility that something else is going on that could be healing people that there's just not a scientific explanation for? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've, got, we've got plenty of that. And, and when I say, um, when you said things that I've heard, I've actually interviewed the people, um, interviewed doctors uh, who've, who've, who were the doctors who were treating the people. I mean, not in every case do I have access to all this, but, um, but in a number of cases, uh, I'm working on a new book related to that, um, but yeah. But I really like what uh, Candy Candy Gunther Brown is doing because um, yeah. And I like I like those who are publishing these things in medical journals because you know I can say it, but my expertise is in ancient historiography. <laughs> uh, but their expertise, uh, those who are publishing this in medical journals, is as physicians and as medical scientists and so on. And so, um, yeah, there's just so much. Um, they recently published one on a gastroparesis healing. Um, there was uh, also the, the or a more recent one on the healing of blindness. Uh, I've gotten medical documentation and some other people being healed of blindness. Of course, in Mozambique, you know, the massive... Uh, number of healings taking place there and, and medical documentation. Um, one that wasn't in my first book, um, I shared it with Lee Strobel and he published it, uh, and it's going to be in my new book, and it's in uh, some other sources as well. But um, this was um, somebody who had a really severe case of multiple sclerosis. Uh, for 15 years, her, her health was declining. 
she she says she was curled up like a pretzel and she'd gone blind she couldn't breathe because her diaphragm wouldn't work without a machine and so she was in this condition some people were praying for her and she suddenly heard a voice uh, people had been praying for her. she heard a voice saying my child rise and walk well she could she didn't she didn't have any muscle that she could she could control that she could make herself walk but it happened <laughs> she jumped out of bed she landed flat on her feet which would have been impossible before first thing she notices is her feet are flat on the ground second thing she notices is her hands are no longer curled up and the third thing she notices is that she's seeing it and normally if you're healed from something after that long your muscles are atrophied you're not going to be able to to run or something so most accounts you know the muscles are but her muscles weren't even atrophied i mean god healed her so completely she she began running around and um i i checked this with two of the doctors who were her doctors at the time and they both gave the same you know they said this is a miracle there's no other explanation for it she was on her deathbed when when god healed her of all this instantly um and this was in 1981 there's been no recurrence is she still alive today yep she's still alive today wow and 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 and, and there are there are other I mean, there's somebody else i just interviewed uh maybe a week or two ago who also had uh i think hers was also multiple, no no hers was anyway I, <laughs> It, I, ha I haven't written it out all up yet, so it's not all clear in my mind. But she, she also was unable to walk. She also was healed, I think it was 1981, uh, somewhere around there. Very similar story. Um, and, yeah, the doctors, the medical records, and, and so on. Uh, and and she, was, she was about to be sent to a nursing home because nothing could be done for her. When she walks wow. back, when she walks back into uh, uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, where where she had been, they'd been trying to treat her and said, "No, there's nothing more we can do for you." Um, you know, and she'd been wheeled out. Uh, they arranged that she was allowed to go to this church service. When she came back in, walking, the the nurse on duty dropped the phone, <laughs> and everybody gathers around her. They want to hear the story. Uh, yeah, anyway, a lot of this stuff has happened wow. and is documented. So even if you even if you doubt and you're not sure about what to make of the scriptures and everything, uh, there's still people can hope that there's still miracles still happen today. Yeah. And uh it's rhyme or reason. I don't know how that's that's another I guess that's another figuring out uh, I guess why God would heal and not heal other people, that's probably yeah. beyond the uh the scope of uh, this interview. If he healed everybody when we asked him, I think we would say, okay, this is, you know, we would do like what we do with the creation around us. We'd say, well, this is just a natural phenomenon of your asking, you know? <laughs> um, so you have to think about the burden of proof, okay? If I'm going to be open-minded, what is the level of evidence that I'm going to require? Is it going to be an unreasonable level of evidence? In the Gospels, Jesus healed people, but he didn't go with um, 
you know, when, when after I've been doing signs, somebody, some people come to him and they say, well, uh, that's not good enough. You have to do this. God doesn't play those games. He, he's, not, he's not bound to follow our rules that we make up for him to follow. He's given us evidence, and it's up to us to, um, to accept that evidence or reject it. But there is evidence there. And, you know, if, if we're willing to, um, to look at the evidence and, and not say, well, as long as there possibly could be a natural explanation, and I may not even know what it is. Well, once you say that, you're not really open to evidence because you're always going to say, well, somebody got raised from the dead, but maybe, you know, maybe they, maybe they, were, they weren't dead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had, I had two, two people who were atheists. I'm not saying all atheists would do this. I don't think I would have said this back when I was an atheist, but, um, you know, when, when I, when I said, if somebody were raised from the dead in front of you, would you believe? And they said, no, <laughs> but, Hey, honesty. All right. <laughs> yeah. But I said, okay, what kind of evidence would you accept? I, I have eyewitness accounts from people, including from people I know really well, people I trust really well, and, and from some doctors of people being raised from the dead. So what kind of evidence are people willing to accept? And if you say, well, unless he, he comes to me on my own terms, well, forget it. God is not your, you know, he's, he's not there at your beck and call. He's given evidence. He's presented his, his loving demand. Once in a while, he, he reaches out to people in that extraordinary way. He kind of did to me, but uh, that's not the norm. So, yeah. Uh, wow. When, when, you, when, you, when, you ha when you're really open to the evidence, then you can start asking, okay, God, if you're really there, Please show me. Man. Well, Craig, thank you so much. This was enlightening. Uh, I am fascinated. I'm, I'm learning so much about the Bible and talking to you. And I, I hope you've clearly mentioned, you've given us a tease of these miracle stories. We're just going to have to do this uh, a part two again uh, <laughs> to talk about this. Uh, but thank you so, so much for just the time. And uh, I still don't know how you write as much as you do. And I mean, you... I see all those books behind you, so I know that you've uh, you got your hands full with uh, with reading. But um, thank you so much for doing this, and I really, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll hopefully get to talk to you again very soon. Thanks, thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Kind of Christian. Please subscribe and leave us a five star review.